It's a phrase from popular movies. It's also a question that comes up in our daily life. The question is, is that even legal? We talk about the things that drive you crazy, the things you won't believe, and the things you need to know and understand. I'm attorney Bob Sewell, and this is the podcast, Is That Even Legal? Let's get started. Today's guest in the podcast is Alan Solberg. Alan Solberg is a transactional attorney. He does a lot of estate planning and asset protection work and buy and sell agreements. He's also a partner at the law firm of Davis, Miles, McGuire, Gardner. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bob. Okay, so I want to tell you a story, okay? Yeah. And uh, okay, I haven't cracked a joke yet, Alan. You're already smiling. But <laughs> I'm ready for anything, Bob. Okay. Um, I want to tell you a story. And this is not a unique story, but I have people come to the office and this is very, very common. Uh, they bring to me a piece of paper and the piece of paper is like a dime store will or trust. It's filled out halfway. It's the decedent had every intention to finish it off and he never finishes it. And he may have signed it. He may not have. And it's not witnessed. None of the formalities are observed. But everyone knows dad wanted his assets to go to his favorite son, Frank. Everyone knows that. Okay. The stepmom knows it. All the kids know it. Frank was his favorite son. He also was the most responsible. Everyone else is jacked up on cocaine. I mean, I mean, I, I'm making this up, but sure. I've heard this a million times. Frank's in my office and says, so what can you do for me? And I say, absolutely nothing. So <laughs> how is that? How is that possible? Like, I mean, how is, how is that the law? You know, that when everyone can know it, but we don't have to follow it. Yeah, let me, I can probably help break that down a little bit. I think I okay. understand your concerns <laughs> here. Um, there's two big component pieces to an estate plan. Okay. First, the documents have to be drafted and executed correctly. And then in conjunction with those documents, a clear, concise, well-executed, drafted estate plan, assets have to be appropriately titled or correlated based off of what the plan says. And so in the situation, the hypothetical you were presenting, which I also commonly come across, there's a presumption that assembling or drafting the documents isn't that difficult. And we see a lot of different fly-by-night digital document prepare services yeah. where you input, add a couple of fields, hit print, maybe get signed appropriately, maybe it's witnessed and notarized appropriately, maybe the intent is accurately captured. Um, but not always. And in those not always, it can be a painful, expensive reality when push comes to shove and you're trying to make good on those documents. The other thing that we see really common is when you have a well-drafted estate plan, but assets aren't titled appropriately. We can get into the weeds on this, but a really simple concept I like to explain to my clients is assets that are held in an individual's name are going to be subject to probate. Yeah, yeah. The point of a trust is to assemble documents or put together a contract that clearly articulates the intent of the individual who 
put the contract together, and then tie the assets or retitle the assets into the name of the trust. So what I see often again is scenario number one, the documents aren't doing what they think they're supposed to be doing, or they might have a really well-drafted estate plan, but they're not going to avoid probate or not going to avoid some of this headache or heartache because while it's a well-drafted plan, the home's still titled in dad's name. Yeah. Or the bank account is still in sister's name or whatever else have you. It hasn't been retitled into the name of the trust. So those are really common things that we see with some of these fly-by-night, less expensive, punch-in-punch-out estate plans. Yeah. yeah. Let me tell you how that goes down. Sure. When you're – when they come to me, they, they've uh, – you know, Uncle Larry has died, okay? And he leaves behind nieces and nephews, and the nieces and nephews come to my office. And you see – Uncle Larry, when he's still alive, you get it done right. But when Uncle Larry went the fly-by-night outfit, they come back to me. And I see the same thing over and over, by the way. I, I recognize these documents. I'm like, well, you got this at XYZ, right? And they're like, yeah, I got that XYZ estate planning mail. And, and then anyway, so they say, Uncle Larry had a trust. Yep. We don't need probate. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about it. And as we talk uh, talk about it, we find out Uncle Larry's bank account. It's in Uncle Larry's name. Yep. Um, Uncle Larry's home, car, home, car. everything's in his name. And or it is a gut punch. It, oh, it's a gut punch. Explaining that to those heirs. Explain. They thought they were coming in with an easy resolve and realizing it's anything but. Yeah. And a big piece of that is oftentimes. If you don't have competent legal representation, either you're going to get the documents wrong or you're not going to get the assets appropriately titled in the name of the trust. And that's so common. They save what by doing a run-of-the-mill push-button trust or estate plan. They might save a little on the front end, but when they're exposed to all the probate expense and delay and cost and time, it's... uh, very unfortunate. Okay, so one of the things that I am here on occasion is is uh, the person who is has the money, the person who is contemplating death. They say, "Well, I'm dead. I really don't give a damn. I really don't care what happens. How can an estate plan help me?" It only helps my ne'er-do-well kids who've been, who've been asking me for money my entire life. What do I care? Sure. Does it help? To that response, you got to be careful. A lot of individuals who are selling estate plans overcommit and misrepresent the asset protection afforded in your more traditional revocable trusts. Okay. Don't get me wrong, revo- revocable trusts provide significant asset protection if drafted appropriately to the beneficiaries of that revocable trust. Okay. But there's a very common misconception that a revocable trust in and of itself, I put my home in my trust. I put my savings account in my trust. Ergo, it's protecting my assets. Back to your point, a revocable trust doesn't accomplish those asset protection goals. How might it help this individual who is more affluent and maybe doesn't really care what happens after his death? How might it benefit him during his life? There's lots of different types of trusts, lots of different type of asset protection structures. And there are some very common, well-used and a little bit more sophisticated structures 
where someone in that scenario can achieve asset protection during their lifetime while still ensuring that the assets go to those whom they want them to go without unnecessary cost or delay at their death. Yeah. And you know, the other thing I, I think about is, you know, when you have a well-organized estate, and everything's titled properly, and you've really contemplated this, if you become incapacitated, it is a whole lot cheaper to go to Alan now, have an awesome estate plan, than to deal with Bob when your estate plan stinks and you don't have powers of attorney and your money is right. here and it's there. And man, and the reason why is you come at that moment, your kid comes to me and says, uh, daddy's incapacitated. What do I do now? And I say, well, now the government gets to help you control your daddy's money. Sure. And that really sucks. It's called a guardian conservatorship. And well, we call it adult probate. Yeah, adult right? probate, right? Yep. I mean, it's really, really, it's a bummer. It is a bummer. And what's so unfortunate is structured appropriately, you can eliminate these exposures. If you have these assets appropriately titled, documentation where you've already contractually specified who would step in in the event of incapacity, that type of thing, you're not dealing with the heartache and the expense related to a guardianship or conservatorship. So yeah, while he hasn't yet passed away, there is a concern of incapacity, concern of liability exposure, those types of things we can address very well. So I want to get deeper. I want to get deeper into some of the estate planning issues. And one of the things that people don't think about is how am I go going to exit my business? And we don't think about that as estate planning, but I think it is. It's And it doesn't necessarily involve all the traditional estate planning roles, I guess, that lack sure. of a better word. But we're approaching this silver tide. The boomers have built up, you know, businesses and they're, they're very valuable. But as they pass away, as they become older, how do we preserve that value? What do we have to think about? Sure. A couple of different things. Um, from my perspective, let me just a little insight into what I've experienced professionally. I've, I've had the opportunity to work in the mergers and acquisition space, which is fancy attorney speak for buying and selling businesses. Um, and what I realized early on is that you could have a very competent attorney assisting with the buying and selling of a business. But what you're doing is you're taking an asset that's fairly well protected, perhaps in an LLC or in a partnership with insurance coverage and that type of thing. And when you are the seller, you're taking a well-protected asset and you are transferring that or transforming that into cash, which is potentially a very unprotected exposed asset. What I realized early on is that there were a lot of attorneys that were very good at the buying and selling legal aspects and a very good set of attorneys that were very well versed in the estate planning asset. But oftentimes there was something lost in that transition. You have an attorney that represents the sell of your business, but then what are you doing with that cash or what the compensation that comes from the sale of that business? How are you addressing that on the estate planning side? Okay. And so I wanted to tailor my approach to be able to handle both of those. So that those clients that come and retain me to help them sell their business, that we were also having in-depth conversations about what are we doing with those assets on their way out. This year in particular, with the federal scheduled rate hikes, with the concerns about inflation, with the concerns of taxes raising exponentially, this is a year where we have seen more transactions in this first quarter than probably any other time during the practice of law that I've experienced. So tell me about that. 
Um, just a lot of people selling businesses. As you were explaining, we have an age group that are hitting retirement age. And we also have a lot that are younger than that age group that are realizing my company is probably more valuable now than it has been in a long time and maybe perhaps in the future. And taxes are going to rise. I want to exit. I want to sell my business. I want to get out of it. From the buyer side, they're looking at interest rates that are continuing to creep up. You need money to facilitate these purchases. You need loans to facilitate these purchases. They're also very incentivized to quickly close on these transactions at lower rates before these hike. And so we're seeing a lot of transactions, a lot of transitions occurring right now. I've heard it called the year of the exit. Year of the exit is something you'll hear often. How does that apply to what we're discussing? In the estate planning and asset protection realm, we've touched on it briefly, but we have some unique opportunities to take that well-protected asset that's in that business that is being sold. And as that cash exit or that cash event occurs, structure in such a way that is protected. Asset protection, liability reduction, so that it's held in a way that the client has access to those funds while still protecting it from other creditors and other concerns. The other thing that is not commonly addressed is depending, and not to get too far into the weeds, and I'm not intelligent enough to speak much on taxes, however, in the event that your basis and your exit value at your sell, a large gap there is going to result in some huge capital gains. It is a very unique opportunity through a series of trust structures where we can delay and mitigate some of the capital gains exposure on the tax side as well. These are options that we've implemented for our clients, and it has resulted in some instances of seven-figure savings of taxes. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. That's that's a whole lot of dough. It's a lot of dough. And that's because when you buy a when you when you start a business, the value is right very little to zero, Correct. right? And then if you built this business, it could be incredibly uh, valuable, right? Yeah. Had a conversation with the gentleman a little bit earlier this week, held a large acreage, large swath of property out in the East Valley, and he sold it in 2019. And as I was reviewing what his tax exposure had been, as we were addressing some of his other estate tax concerns, I realized, good grief, if I'd had the opportunity to have been in front of him in 2019 and implemented some transactional and trust structures, we could have eliminated millions of dollars in capital gains exposure. As I'm looking into my business and I want to sell it, maybe this year, maybe the year, years to come, when do I bring in the attorney? Sure. That's a good question. And I can appreciate... Because you guys, you guys yeah. cost way too much. Hey, I'm no. <laughs> Sure. Sure. Right. I can appreciate that. Money doesn't grow on trees. But now, when do you bring in the attorney? Yeah. From my perspective, it depends on the situation and the other professionals that are around you. I don't profess to be the smartest guy in the room. If you have a competent broker that's walking you through some of these deal points and ironing those out, great. I think it's very, very helpful to have an attorney involved at the point that you are ready to sign a letter of intent. Nine times out of 10, the vast majority of the letter of intent is considered non-binding, which means it's going to change. It's outlining the basic deal structure that it's addressing the exit. Um, but it is very, very helpful, and a lot of issues can be ironed out if a competent attorney sitting down with the client that is selling their business or the client that is buying the business 
to review the terms of that proposed letter of intent and make sure that everyone understands specifically what is going to transpire should this transaction occur. One of the things that just makes me shiver back in my my uh, commercial litigation days, and that was the seller of a business who wasn't secure. And I know we're getting a little egg-heady here, mm-hmm. but let's say I own a business and I want to sell to my to a buyer, whatever that business is. I Blood, sweat, and tears. Anyone who's ever started something from scratch knows that building a business involves sleepless nights. Sure. It involves incredible risk. Sometimes you go without paychecks. Quite often you go without paychecks. You have, you know, it really is your blood, sweat, and tears. And so when you're ready to go, and leave that business behind, you're exhausted, right? And you see the number and someone says, I'm going to give you X Mm -hmm. dollars, right? Hundreds of thousands or whatever the amount may be. And just that piece of paper, it's not enough, right? I really got to think about how that deal is structured so I make sure I get my money. Sure. And I think part of what you're referencing is a scenario where the entirety of the cash being paid for the purchase of the business is not all paid up front or at close. And that's a very, very common source of friction between buyer and seller. We refer to them as seller carrybacks, where the buyer will provide a portion of the total purchase price at close with the remaining portion paid out to the seller over a period of time. And it goes back to that adage, one in the hand, two in the bush. Um, In that scenario particularly, it is very, very important to have a competent attorney clearly articulating how and when that money is paid back. Even more importantly, what are the consequences and what collateral has been secured in the event that that payment is not paid back? You know what, Alan? My word is my bond, right? Sure. Isn't that what they always say? That. Good old Frank, he, who's buying my business, he's a good old boy, and he his word is his bond. Yeah, that works I don't well. Need you. <laughs> I don't need you attorney folks to sure. second guess him. Yeah, tongue in cheek, that works well in uh, very few situations. <laughs> um, Frank, <laughs> what, what a, a scenario that's quickly coming to mind is where Frank shook the hand, promised payment. Frank died before full payment was made. Yeah. You're not dealing with Frank anymore. You're not dealing with Frank's kids. They weren't part of that conversation. They didn't shake the hand. If that liability is not clearly articulated and secured, there's going to be some problems on those payments. All right. So I want to go to a couple more of these getting rid of your business stories. And here's the horror story, okay? Family business, couple generations long, okay? And... When it started, it literally was dirt nothing, right? And as it built over the next 100 years, this became a company that is literally worth millions, millions Mm -hmm. and millions of dollars, built from scratch, owned by the family, owned really mostly by one guy. Now that guy dies. Yep. And you have a multi-million dollar asset, maybe a hundred million dollar asset, and you have six kids. And you're looking at estate planning, and you want that that asset to continue, 
You know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the guy. I, let's put, I want to be that guy, right? I want to be the guy sure. with the hundred million dollar business, yep. but I'm that guy. I got six kids. They all want their, their share, right? That's a heck of a lot of money, but only one kid is actually running the business. What are we doing here? I mean, how do you look at that? How do you plan for that? Do I plan or is it just, is, is that business just done at the, my death? Yeah, I, I hope that in a situation like that, again, you have an attorney well-versed in two different areas. First area is one we've been talking about, estate planning. We need to make sure that that individual's estate plan is clearly articulating how those assets are transferred at death. But in the situation, which is common here, we don't have large corporate employers. A lot of the wealth in Arizona is tied up in small family-ran businesses. It's awesome. I love that about our state. But the concern is if the estate plan in and of itself is not carefully correlated or coordinated with the operating agreement in the event that this entity is an LLC or for the partnership agreement in the event that this is a limited partnership, um, there can be some serious concerns. And instead of a clean handoff where that company continue to operate and continue to generate profit, it's going to get mired in litigation where only attorneys win. Oh, I've seen that. Sure. I've seen it. I mean, where the, the decedent dies, he had built up an amazing business, and he doesn't name a successor. Yeah. Uh, and the people he's named to run the business or, you know, to run his estate aren't versed in that business. Not their fault. Sure. But you have an asset that really disappears, millions of dollars worth of asset gone. Yeah. And without carefully drafted documents, you're now selling that asset based off of its stripped down value of hard assets rather than the opportunity to continue to perpetuate the goodwill associated with that business as an ongoing operation. It's horribly, horribly sad. So we covered a lot of information here today, and we bounced around. I want to put you in the position of doctor, legal doctor, okay? Okay. Juris doctorate, even? Juris doctorate, sure. that's right. <laughs> um, why don't we get a cool title? Just I don't know. But I put you in the position of doctor, and the patient is that person off the street, the person who's looking at wealth transfer. Mm-hmm. What do you want them to know? What do you want them to, you know, to describe for their symptoms and the cure? Yeah. So if I am diagnosing and, and a law firm very much is like a emergency room, um, we want to prevent those emergency scenarios as much as possible. The way we do that is getting in front of things. So if you have someone that is anticipating an exit, they have an asset that they've built up, company that they've put their blood, sweat and tears into I want to have a conversation with them. We want to make sure that they're getting top dollar for their purchase. We want to make sure that they're being compensated fairly on this exit. The other thing we want to make sure that we are stressing that again, as they are taking that asset that is fairly well protected with the corporate structure and the insurance associated with it, as they take that well protected asset and convert it into cash on that exit, that there is somewhere safe for that cash to go. We want to have that conversation. In conjunction with that conversation, we want to make sure that the documents, the purchase agreements associated with the buying of that enterprise, of that entity, that they are drafted in such a way that we are mitigating any exposure 
for the seller after the business transaction has closed. The last thing you want is for that retiree to be constantly checking over her shoulder, wondering what in the world did I do? Am I going to be sued for something now that I'm out? Are the operations, you know, mistakes that happen after close, are they going to come back on me? We want to make sure that that's all well drafted up. Those are common concerns we see. Am I getting paid what I'm owed? Once this payment comes in, how do I protect that payment? And in this transaction, am I certain that these documents are doing what I think that they're supposed to be doing? Alan, thanks for coming in. If I need to get a hold of you, how can I do that? Yeah, go ahead and call us directly. Call the direct firm line 480-733-6800. Ask for me. We'll uh, have a conversation. Make sure that you're heading the right direction. Thanks, Alan. You bet. Thanks for listening to Is That Even Legal? Remember, this isn't legal advice. If you have a legal question for yourself, reach out to an attorney. Remember that we're fun. We're lovable and we are here to help you. To my listeners in 62 countries across the world, if you have something you want to explore, email us at producer at evenlegal.com. And don't be shy about leaving a review for this podcast on your favorite podcast forum. See you next time.